You never want to think that people are profiting from a crime against your family, but people keep coming up with new and creative ways to monetize Ron and Nicole's murders. Capitalism is alive and well in America. What's up, guys? Welcome to the OJ Tour. There is an OJ Simpson tour. Paying customers ride through Brentwood, a suburb of Los Angeles, where Nicole Brown Simpson and my brother were killed. The tour is run by a guy who coincidentally went to school with Justin, one of Nicole and Simpson's kids. Right this way, my friend. Come around to the front, I'll open the door for you. So why don't you hop in? Yep, hop right in. What would this tour be without a crappy vintage white Ford Bronco? This is what you made happen. This is the Bronco. We did the Indiegogo campaign. I raised money. We have the Bronco. Since we started this, we had an OJ museum. The media came out, international news coverage. So it's really taken on a life of its own. Well, since someone has spent the 45 bucks on this, we'll let the host, Alex Papagan, lay out some important locations that you'll need to know for this episode to make sense. Three locations specifically. To your right now, this is the Gretna Green condo. This is where Nicole lived after she separated from OJ. This is the first Los Angeles residence of Cato Kalin, the house guest. When it comes time to move down to Bundy, there's not gonna be a guest house. OJ goes to Cato and he's like, why don't you come live in one of my guest houses on Rockingham, free of charge? Cato's like, great. So to recap, Gretna Green was the location of Nicole Brown's first condo after divorcing Simpson. Bundy was the location of Nicole's second condo after she moved from Gretna Green. And Rockingham is the street where Simpson lived the entire time. When Alex goes into detail of the events that happened on the night of the murders, he takes some artistic license. The night of the murders, Nicole decides to go to dinner with her family at the Mezzaluna restaurant where Ron was working. She introduces him to her parents. They have a nice meal. And when her parents get home to Orange County, Nicole's mother, Judith, realizes she's forgotten her sunglasses at the restaurant. So Nicole calls the restaurant, Ron finds the sunglasses, and he's like, how about I just bring them over after work? Ron shows up with the sunglasses, Nicole buzzes him in, they meet in the courtyard, OJ sees this, and he loses it. He almost cuts off Nicole's head, then he goes for Ron, stabbed him like 47 times. Some of the wounds were extra deep. I saw a forensic thing from 2020 from back in the day where they said that the wounds were extra deep as if the assailant were accenting a point with his knife. Like, so you think you can get with my wife? You know, like whatever. This guy is talking about the murder of my brother. This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, 
As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. So, Kim, I want to start out with the Hollywood tour. And by the way, there's more than one. I mean, I can't even imagine your reaction to listening to it. You know, Nancy, I've heard a lot of sick and disgusting stuff. Yeah, my skin is pretty thick. Wow. It shouldn't be, but it is. So did you know that they existed? Yeah, I don't think I knew about that particular one. Um, I remember a handful of years ago, I was taking my son to see Shrek at the Pantages Theater down in Hollywood. And I was walking along and to my right was this traveling stand or whatever. And this guy was handing out pamphlets and he handed me one and it was the O.J. Simpson murder trial tour or something to that effect. Were you angry? Were you shocked? Um, I don't know, you know. You grossed out? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, does it piss me off? Yeah. Does it make me angry? Yeah. Does it surprise me sometimes? You know, I just, I wasn't expecting it. I was trying to have a moment with my kid and not have all of that tragedy influence my afternoon, and it did. Okay, so on this tour, the guy says, this is the white Bronco. You know, it isn't. That Bronco was in somebody's garage forever and only recently went to a murder museum, which, by the way, just got a contribution from Tanya Brown, who gave a whole bunch of memorabilia from her sister. Yeah, we didn't do that. This guy sort of takes a lot of liberty with the relationship between Nicole and Ron. Did they have a relationship? No. They knew each other from the neighborhood. Brentwood is a pretty small bedroom community. They probably ran in the same circles, same coffee shop, same gym. Um, But beyond that, there was no romantic involvement between the two of them. I remember when we needed to empty out my brother's uh, apartment after he was killed that I found... Uh, They were like electronic Rolodexes back in the day before we had our cell phones. Yeah. Um, And I remember seeing her name in there. Um, I think it was um, Nicole, and then it said S-I-M-P. And I remember being nervous and thinking, oh, my God, I don't know what this means. I showed it to my dad, and we just kind of looked at each other, and then I just handed it to the detective. That's as much as I know about the two of them having a, a relationship. Well, a lot of people have exploited and profited off the case. I mean, that's no surprise to you. Some people made a name for themselves just by being associated with it. Yeah. I mean, I think people always want to think about Cato, Cato Kalin in that regard. Um, Cato, you know, went on to be a household name and a celebrity in his own right. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us now on the Dean and Rod Show, Cato Kalin. He's here on the movie set, but he doesn't have a part. Kato Kalin is touring the East Coast visiting friends. Kato's one that was out there in the limelight, and then there's others that just retreated and have been left carrying the weight. And in today's episode, we're going to talk to Jill Shively. She was another witness that was not heard from in the criminal case, but um, she sold her story years ago trying to profit a little bit off of it, and I think that's haunted her for many years, whereas Kato embraced it. We are going to the Tulaga Lake Tennis Club and Spa to sit down with Kato, Kaylin. He has seemed to be super excited to get together. He 
is a little bit like how some of you may have remembered him. He's a little goofy. Um, he actually suggested that I come in workout clothes or a bathing suit to come to the tennis facility. And uh, that is not going to happen. Okay, so Toluca Lake Tennis Club is coming up on my left-hand side. pretty in here. Yeah. Hi there, how are you? Um, I'm supposed to go to the conference room. Conference I'm doing an interview with Kato Kalin in the conference room. Oh yeah, upstairs? Okay. It's that door right there. Okay, great, thank you. No problem. Oh, here he is. Hey. Hi, oh my god, hi. 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 I'm great, hi. how are you? This is the best place in the world. It's beautiful. You feel like you're at a resort? Yeah, you look the so same. So great to see, oh my god, thanks. You're like a household, like a one name, like a Cher, Bjork, you know, I mean. Bjork, yes. Bjork, yeah. I tell people, if it's Harpo, Ringo, I only hang out with people and know. With an O. That's true, Kimo. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't work for me. Cato is just like you picture him. Blonde, tan, surfer boyish look. Just a little older version of what we remember from 25 years ago. You were close with Nicole. How did that come to be? She met a, an actor friend of mine, and that's how it all started, how I met Nicole. Yeah. And then I went to a Gretna Green party, and I saw her that she had this guest house, and I said, oh my God, who lives here? I'll rent it. She goes, nobody. We made a deal. So from living there, I became friends with Sydney and Justin, and they were just fun kids. Sydney and Justin are OJ and Nicole's children. After the divorce, they shared custody, with Nicole having the kids the majority of the time. The biggest thing was that she could trust me if she needed to do something. It wasn't Nanny. I'd say, of course, go to the store right. and do whatever. I love being with them. And the Kardashians would be there too. Way before the Kardashians were reality stars, Kris Jenner and her then-husband, Robert Kardashian, were friends with The Simpsons. After their respective divorces, Nicole and Kris remained close and their kids played together. And people always ask me if I had any kind of romance. I never had a romance with Nicole at all. It was 100% friendship. Obviously, I, I had a relationship with the kids. I, I think they adored me, and they got a dog, and they said, Mommy, we're going to call it Kato. Yeah. And that was Kato the Akita. So how did you end up living at his house then? So Nicole decided to move to Bundy. Oh, right. Had then. a room there. Okay. And she said, you can move in there. I knew not to move in there. Now, I'm looking for a place, and OJ at that six-month time already knew me, said, until you find a place, you can move into a bungalow. Right. And I offered always to pay him rent. He never would take the money. He said, just find a place. Did you establish a friendship with him during that time or? No, I rarely, I mean, I saw maybe out six times in the entire time. I wasn't a close friend of OJ Simpson. Right. I was closer to Nicole. Did you ever know my brother? No, never. Did you ever see him around Broadway? Never. I was working 12 to 13 hours. I was the extras wrangler on movie sets. Mm -hmm. I would work at 5 a.m. and just go around the clock. My hours were insane. So what do you remember about the night of the murders, June 12th, 1994? Simpson was headed to LAX for a flight to Chicago that night. Did you see him? We talked and I helped him with luggage. And I do remember the bag 10, 15 yards away and then me walking to grab it. He said, no, I got it. And that right. was the bag that was never found. Right. Who knows what's in it? Do you know that 
years later, speaking of Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian's people contacted our family after her dad died and said, we came across a bag in my dad's garage that we think might be helpful to you. Our attorneys proceeded to make an exchange happen or like a meet and greet, and then we never heard from them again. Wow. While OJ's in Chicago getting ready for a golf tournament the next day, Cato is about to become part of the trial of the century. The police show up and start asking questions. When they come to my room, I just said, come on in. I didn't know four guys walk in. And I was like, God, I hope they're detectives. And then they said, where were you last night? And I told them everything. And they looked at my shoes and they looked at my clothes. So they were in my room for a while and they just said, we're gonna ask some questions. And that was it. And then my mind was going, could O.J. Simpson done this? And then part of me said, there's just no way. He's in Chicago. The body of 34-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson was found outside her West Los Angeles home. Next to it, the body of an unidentified man. Do you know that no one knew it was Ron? And my family, everybody didn't know for those two days it was me. Oh. In Los Angeles tonight, still no formal charges in the murder of Simpson's ex-wife and a man. I had the voicemail messages of my mom calling me so many times over and over, like, answer the phone. Did you ever talk to Simpson after the murders? OJ pulled me into the kitchen by myself and said, you know I was here with you. And I said, no, I don't. <gasps> he just kind of shook it off. And then I was like, is he trying to use me yeah. for something that I think he could have done? I think he's guilty. I want to move out immediately. I remember that you testified to something that I, I'm curious if you feel like it didn't get enough play. You testified that you saw blood in the house mm -hmm. before he came home from Chicago. Right. Which would pretty much guarantee that there was no planting of evidence. Right, there was like, a blood droplets and they said, watch your step. Okay, so let me understand. You testified in the grand jury to seeing blood at Rockingham, but then Marcia never brought it up in the criminal case, so I, I don't get it, what happened? I mean, your relationship, I'm sure, with prosecution was much closer than mine yeah. because it's, you're involved in yeah. why they, certain things weren't brought up. So after you left the house, was the next time you saw him at the preliminary hearing? I think it was the, the next time, and I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't know what to do. Right. And then a guy in the film business who was my friend said, you got to meet a lawyer, you got to get someone. And they, a guy pro bono uh -huh. helped me out. Yeah. And then I went in and met with Marsha Clark. Right the longest time with Marsha Clark. And uh, I thought our rapport was fantastic and she knew my feelings. It was March 21st you testified and I remember thinking you were so nonchalant and you you seemed like you weren't taking it seriously and I was I was mad. People call Mr. Kalen. Brian Cato Kalen, B-R-I-A-N, K-A-T-O-K-A-E-L-I-N. Mr. Kalen, is Cato your middle name? A nickname. Is that what people call you instead of Brian? Yes. You a little bit nervous today? I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> a little nervous. It wasn't me nonchalant. I think it was in the first time in my life I was in a courtroom with not even a parking ticket. After sitting with Cato for 20 hours, Marcia had pretty clear expectations as to how his testimony would go. But instead, he hemmed and hawed and hedged. All right, Mr. Kalen, you told uh, Mr. Shapiro that the defendant was not angry or agitated when he spoke of Sydney and the recital, and now you've just told us that he was upset. What I, I have trouble with is the, 
upset the word of what the range is. Are you confused about the meaning of the word upset? No, no, I, I know what you mean. And what about during the time that he made the remark about Nicole wearing tight dresses? Was he upset when he said that? Maybe just a bit with that. Just a bit upset about Nicole, her tight dresses, is that right? Yes. And eventually, Marsha had enough. Didn't Marsha start to talk to you as a hostile witness? Yeah. Directing the court to page 2001 and volume 112. This is your testimony in this okay. trial, Mr. Kalin. Okay. My question to you, what was the defendant's physical demeanor when he talked to you about Nicole wearing tight dresses? Your answer, oh, that he was upset. He made a point to say the tight dresses that I mentioned before. Wearing those tight outfits, what are they going to do when they're grandmas? You didn't say there that he was a little bit upset, did you? Um, no. You changing your testimony now, Mr. Kalin? No. Was he upset or wasn't he? No, not, not real upset. I'm going to ask leave of the court to take this witness as a hostile witness. When I hear the word hostile, it means I was getting upset with her, which I never raised my voice. I didn't know the terminology right. of that in a courtroom of your hostile witness, but it was explained to me how she could question me differently. Because she didn't think that you were being forthright in your yeah. answers? I don't, I'm not saying I had a bad report, Marsha Clark. And no, I, I, I know, she, I'm sure she doesn't like me. I don't hate her. I just, I don't, <laughs> I just, I'm sure she doesn't like me. She felt like you weren't giving her information. So yeah. what weren't you giving her? I don't know. When I spoke with Marsha, she made it clear that it wasn't that she didn't like Cato. She was just frustrated because she felt he was never straightforward or honest with the prosecution. My buddy, Cato Kalin, he hid a bunch of stuff from us in the beginning until we were able to get a tape that showed he'd been lying to us about hiding the evidence he knew about domestic violence. He was there for the a couple of times that she got beaten. I couldn't say he's guilty, that'd be thrown out. I couldn't right. say he's the guy that did it. I think she knew my feeling that I can't prove it, but I think he's a guilty man. I wasn't allowed to say that. Do you think that anything would have made a difference in that case? No. When I saw the jury, I said, no way. I just distinctly remember two of the jurors waving to him, just like knowing mm -hmm. that they love this guy. Mm -hmm. So Was it hard for you to sit up on the stand and have him be in the courtroom and looking at you and the, watching in the, you? The, in the beginning it was, in the first hour maybe, and then I was like, I'm just gonna focus and not even look at him. I remember he was laughing at you, like he laughed at you. I, I think that he was throwing me off like, whatever. Yeah. No one's gonna, who cares about him? So how do people treat you after the trial? They would spit at me. I had girls at a baseball game and a, and a concert put gum in my hair. <gasps> Driving in a car, I'd have people come up, roll the window going, you goddamn motherfucking liar. I'm not used to that, yeah. of being like a high school quarterback and, and a prom king and like yeah. having actual hate. So many times I've gotten messages of, you should have been the guy that was murdered. That makes you not go off a while. I was an introvert for a year. I get those two, the same thing should happen to me that happened to my brother. He was sleeping with a married woman. He got what's coming to him. He was too much of a pussy to fight back, so he deserved to get his throat slit. We had death threats. We had bomb scares at our house, and why still... you would have to? It just blows me away. I, I don't know. I, I I don't know. Other than I think he killed my brother, and somebody else doesn't, and so they feel this visceral reaction to me because yeah. why not? 
One of the bigger reasons that I wanted to do this is because I think people don't realize the collateral damage. Everybody's so concerned about him and what his life has been like that people have not paid attention to how it's impacted all the people that participated. And I don't think people understand how it changes you. And then there comes a point where it's like, I gotta live my life too. And I'm trying to do good things and I'm trying to move forward and use this for good. I feel like I'm always happy and bringing light to things and getting picked on for being the dork, the dummy. I came from Wisconsin for the whole purpose of being famous. But um, I got fame in the worst way. Yeah. Beautiful young people yeah. were murdered. And becoming famous from that is something I would not want to be famous for. America has fallen in love with this cool new game called Best Fiends, and I'm right there with them. It's a different puzzle game than I've played on my phone, and I've downloaded a ton. This one is really cool because there are all these little challenging levels that require you to actually use your brain. It's easy to learn, but it's difficult to master, although within about a day and a half, I've already conquered 22 levels, so I just must be that smart. I don't know, but there's all these cute little characters and the music's really great. It's keeping me totally interested. It's a casual game. I can play it alone or with family and my friends. In fact, anybody can play from kids to older adults, but it's really made for older adults. So let me tell you what you can do. You can go to the Apple App Store or Google Play and you can download it for free. And you too can solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute little characters. This is a five-star rated mobile game, so don't miss out. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Again, it's best fiends. That's friends without the R. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Another person who gained notoriety around this case is Jill Shively. If you remember, she was a key witness for the prosecution during the grand jury, but ultimately wasn't used by Marsha Clark because Jill sold her story to the tabloids. This has always bothered me because her account of that evening would have put Simpson near the scene of the crime and established a clear timeline for the prosecution. She was never called to the stand. And going on this journey, I knew I had to reach out to Jill. Okay, got an answer from Jill Shively. Shall we do this together? I, I feel like a little vomit is coming up. Okay, so the notification came in on my phone, but I didn't look. Uh, seriously, like my heart is racing a little bit and I'm, I'm feeling a little sweaty. Okay, here we go. 
Oh my God, OMG. Ah, hi, how are you? I always think about you and I have... <laughs> I always think about you and I have much to share with you. I suffer a lot from this case. You can call me and she lists her phone numbers. Um, wow. We are en route to have a little conversation with Jill. It'll be a great opportunity to give her a chance to share her thoughts and how it has impacted her, how it has stayed with her. Hopefully today it will be um, cathartic for her to say what she feels and get some things off her chest. When we were growing up um, in Chicago... Um, Wait, you're from Chicago? Mm -hmm. I'm from Indiana. Oh, really? Yeah. I, nice. up, I have relatives in Elkhart, but I grew up in Indianapolis. So. Oh, Midwestern. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good values there. Good values. <laughs> I know. I know your name, um, Jill Shively, and I know what it means to me, but there's a whole new generation of people that may not have any connection or they have a new revised version of you because of all the pop culture and, and the new television shows and stuff like that. So what do you remember about the night of the murders on June 12th, 1994? I was trying to make it to this market to close at 11. I left my home at 1045. I'm heading up San Vicente. San Vicente is a major street that goes through the heart of Brentwood. The intersection where Jill encountered OJ is about a minute from Nicole's house. And as I was approaching Bundy, out of the blue, the Bronco almost hit me. I swerved to not hit it. He crossed two lanes. So he almost hit another driver, a guy who stopped there. So he was yelling at him to move out of his way. My first reaction was, they have to be a drunk driver because he did not have the headlights on. So that's why I almost collided with him. And he glared at me, and I actually, you know, had seen OJ in the village a lot, in yeah. the restaurants. Then he yelled something at me, and then I remembered his voice. We had just seen Naked Gun 33 and a quarter. And I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. that's him. You recognized his voice from the movie Naked Gun 33 and a third? Or, or was it a quarter or a half? Well, who gives a shit what it's called? <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. that's him. Then it made me more mad because I was thinking, he's a celebrity, self-entitlement. Why would you drive that way? And then finally, the Bronco took off. Okay, so then what? I caught the license plate and I wrote it down. I called in to the West LAPD. I said, I want to report this drunk driver. I think it's O.J. Simpson there. And she says, okay, I'll, I'll take it down. And then the next morning, my mom calls me. I told her what happened the night before. And yeah. she's like, you need to report that because she told me what happened to Ron and Nicole. I called in and said, look, I want to let you know what happened to me. So this is you called a second time? A second time. It was early in the morning. Two police come to my door asking me questions like, did he hit you? Did you guys crash? We don't need to, you know, we can't make a traffic report. So I wasn't sure if he was actually doing anything about it. And I had heard that 
During that time, O.J. had a lot of police officers he would play softball with. Right. I was thinking, maybe they're not going to take it seriously. So then it's when I called back to make sure they connected the dots. Jill Shively's encounter with O.J.'s Bronco puts him near the crime scene around the time his ex-wife and Ron Goldman were murdered. No headlights, driving erratically, lashing out. That's the story any prosecutor would love to use. But they weren't the only ones. Um, Hardcopy came to my door and said, hey, you know, we'll give you $5,000. We want to get your side of the story. So the tabloid TV show Hard Copy comes along and dangles $5,000. And you're like, yeah, sure. That was the biggest mistake I've ever done in my life, honestly. I remember when I found out that that happened, being pissed. And I've regretted it ever since I've gone through counseling. So it's the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Why, why did you do that? Um... I just lost my job because of the case. I went to work and they were there. Who? Reporters? The media? Yeah, they kept harassing me. Oh, my God. And then, so they followed me into the work and they said, you can't come into work until we get this straightened out. Oh, my gosh, Jill, I had no idea. Yep. So I did the interview with Hard Copy and then Marcia said to me something about it. And I told her what happened and she's like, mad. So this is what hit me the hardest. She said, you blew my case. I felt like I had to get an attorney for the first time in my life to protect me. I thought I was doing something good, a civic duty. And do you think that she had a hostile feeling towards you because the hard copy interview? My interaction with her all the time was that way, you know, very abrupt, very, um, it was never like, hey, thank you for coming forward, you know. Right. There was no um, camaraderie. It was not that at all. Like, what's your story? Right. What do you got? It was like I was the enemy. Everyone kept trying to convince Marsha, hey, Jill is reputable. Put her on the stand and let, you know, let them question her. I was really connecting with Jill and it felt good. It felt sincere. But playing in the back of my mind were the things that Marsha said to me in our last episode. She seemed like the ideal witness. Now, before we put her on before the grand jury, we say, please do not talk to the press. Please do not sell your story. She goes, I won't do that. I will not do that. Definitely won't do that. Okay, so we put her on at the grand jury. She does well. After her testimony, it comes to light. She has sold her story. She posed with a big picture of the check, and she was found to be a complete liar. Two people with two different versions of the same event. Did you feel early on that your safety was in jeopardy? I didn't feel unsafe until later on when I started getting threats. So there were places I didn't feel comfortable going and or I would just I would stay close to home. I would go to my daughter's PTA stuff and school things with her. And actually, she had to deal with some of that, too. At school? At school. From little kids? Like, these are five and six Their parents. Some of the people still supported O.J., and so people were, were they holding you responsible for something? They didn't want to believe I was there and they didn't want to believe OJ did it. Right. And I would just, I wouldn't argue with them, you know. So you, did you hibernate? Yes, I did for like, um, for a long time. I didn't work. I just stayed home, spent that summer 
basically just not doing much. And then um, August of that year, we lost my older sister, who was 38. She was uh, into this guy, and I guess they got into a fight, but he left her in the canyon. He says they went hiking, but she ended up passing away. So it was really, it was that June and then her August 3rd or 4th. So it was a lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it's been 25-ish years, and in that time there have been so many stories and so many TV shows and books and movies and documentaries. It's still part of our everyday. When I hear about the case, even now after all this time, it makes my heart race. It makes me feel sick to my stomach. My friend, she called me one day, hey, Jill, you're a part of this trivia for the OJ case. I'm like, okay, thanks, you know. I'm like, okay, you know, she, she was excited about it, but I'm like, um, and she could tell by my reaction, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not fun for me. It's not like exciting. And I don't know if it ever will be. I just feel anxiety about this case because I felt tainted by this case. Nothing good came out of it. I developed breast cancer in 2009. The doctor says, you're, you're holding a lot of stuff in. Please let it out. It's going to end up getting cancer. And I ended up getting breast cancer. And I was just thinking, um, what if anything in my life, what really bothered, what's bothering me? And I told well, this case. I'm fine now. It's been 10 years, but I really feel very, very guilty. I have to like forgive myself. It's just hard. It's just devastating because I felt like I contributed to OJ not being convicted. When Marsha had said to me, you blew my case. Well, I believed that for years. And then a lot of people said, no, it was not you. A lot of things happened. And yeah. he actually, you know, had a good dream team. I mean, they yeah. did their job. But still, you know, it bothers me because I felt like I left your family down and the Brown family down. It makes me sad that you've carried this with you. Yeah, it's been horrifying. How come you never reached out? I just figured that you were upset with me. I don't feel like, oh my God, if Jill just would have testified, that would have been it. I don't feel that. I'm appreciative that you were so willing. Um, I was a little hesitant and nervous when I reached out to you on Facebook. You were so quick to respond. I remember going, oh, oh my God, what is she going to say? And, uh. you know, I, I, I was nervous, you know. You had trusted for some because I wanted to meet and tell you, I'm so sorry. I feel a lot lighter from being here, like a counseling session, but I feel better already. <laughs> so thank you. It's like a healing. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
All right, let's talk about Cato. <laughs> Cato. You emailed him to get him to do this podcast. Were you surprised by his response? I don't think I was surprised by his response. I was surprised by his response time, which was almost immediate. Hi, yeah, Kim, totally I'll do this. Like I, that was the energy I got in like the heart emojis and the smile emojis. It was interesting to me. Um, Cato and I never really had a conversation before. What was it like talking one-on-one -on -one after all these years? I had my beliefs about him when he was testifying. I, I, I was annoyed by him. It bugged me that he was just such a jokester. What do you think happened to him on the stand? I think that he was probably nervous and uncomfortable. I don't know that I thought he was trying to ham it up. I think that he was a young guy who was probably really nervous and intimidated and scared. And he was kind of an important witness, you know, testifying in the biggest trial of our century. I think being in the courtroom in general was really, was it was was difficult. I don't think we can ever really explain to people what that felt like. You come into this room, it's 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 pretty small. You have the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the killer, the judge, the families, and you had the jury that had a lot of disdain for anybody that wasn't on the defense. So, you know, I can appreciate that he was probably like a nervous Nelly up there. Well, you know, Cato did know that there was abuse. And certainly, Marsha Clark could have brought that up without Cato because O.J. pled no contest to spousal abuse. Do you think that more should have been made of that? I feel like a lot was made of domestic violence, but I think that you either think it's bad and it can lead to murder or you don't. I think that there's lots of people that excuse it and think it's none of my business or that's between the couple. I don't know if putting more really? in would... I, look what happened. Yeah. Clearly, domestic violence didn't have much of an impact on this case, so I'm not sure if Marsha having more people say they saw it would have made a difference. What about Jill Shively? Jill Shively. Boy, talking to her after all these years and learning that she was so sad about all of it. I just wanted to hug her the whole time. Um, my heart broke for her. Um, I knew that she'd been carrying around a lot. I just wanted to make her feel better. Um, but she's she's definitely got some cracks, um, and I wish and hope that she could heal from it. Marsha Clark says she's a liar, and she wasn't essential to my case. And Joe Shively says that Marsha Clark said, you ruined my case. You blew my case, yeah. And I was an honest person, and I had people saying I was. We did a lot of research. We didn't see any sort of evidence that would make you say she wasn't a truthful person. What do our parents always tell us? You know, there's two, three sides to every story, and somewhere in the middle of Marsha's story and Jill's story is the truth. I think we will never, ever know what actually happened and why she was never put on the stand for real. But that was an era where tabloid magazine shows were out with cash in hand, mm -hmm. paying for every single interview they could. We got offered money to sell stories. I mean, you just did or you didn't. I mean, right. but her doing it had, had a ripple effect. It was helpful for me to hear her tell me that selling her story was a regret because I've, I've held on to that for a really long time. Um, so I was grateful to have that time with her. I think she needed that. I think we both did. It was your intention to explore this, to confront this for yourself. And yet, in interview after interview, you're the person comforting the person you're talking to. Quite honestly, for a long time, I didn't really care about being people's confessional. I didn't have any room in my heart to do that. 
Um, so part of this podcast has been a little bit about opening my heart and letting people share with me their experiences and kind of giving each other some love and attention and hug and compassion. I don't know that I went into it thinking one way or another, but I leave these meetings and these conversations feeling like, Just a month ago, I did a field trip for 25 Danish high school students who actually learn about the OJ case in school. And their teacher, they're on a trip to California, they went to Alcatraz, and they went on the OJ tour. It's mind-boggling the huge effect this has had on culture. There's one last thing that we do on the OJ tour to, you know, keep it... We talk about a lot of grim subjects, but I like to end on a joke. This is the OJ joke book. I'll tell a couple OJ jokes here. What's OJ's favorite piece of kitchen furniture? The Butcher Block. Who's the most famous LA Dodger? OJ Simpson. And finally, what did Ron Goldman say to Nicole when he got to heaven? Here's your fucking sunglasses. (sighs) Fucking asshole. next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. People are just not going to accept that a beloved celebrity could do such a horrible thing. You look back and think, shit, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Well, I wish I hadn't done it. Judge Ito said, I expect this case to be tried at a very high level. Almost immediately, it was a fight in an alley behind a bar at 2 a.m. with broken beer bottles. All that drama. All those theatrics is something I'm very angry about, even today, and very bitter about. Simpson got this kind of enraged look, and he looked almost animal-like. His eyes were bulging and literally spits flying out of his mouth. I mean, that's horrible. What's the point of confronting a guy if you don't get a chance to bitch slap him? A lot of ghosts in these hallways. Can't wait for the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson? Listen to episode four right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear episode four of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at at Confronting Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting O.J. Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass, along with executive producers Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan. Story producer, Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor, Matt Delvecchio, and editor, Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Mive Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. 
some material, including court testimony, was edited for time. I'm Elena, an autopsy technician. And I'm Ash, a hairstylist. And we just love swapping stories about all of the morbid things that fascinate us. And if you do too, join us on our podcast, Morbid. It's a safe space to let your weirdo flag fly. On Morbid, we cover dark historical events, sinister science, unnerving paranormal events, and sordid high society murders. We also dive deep into the most notorious crimes in history. Our podcast is grounded in rigorous and painstaking research. We're also not afraid to read a b- We keep it weird because a dash of snark is necessary to get through grotesque true tales of demented minds. So follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.